0: And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
1: And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny autumn day. Oh, Don, 90 degrees, 70 degrees in a week.
0: Uh, to, to, well, we're recording this on October 18th for broadcast on October 19th. Now it's been cool and then it's been warm and then it's been cool and we're going back into the warm briefly. Today, as we're preparing the show, it's going to be 87 degrees and it'll be 55 degrees tonight, mostly clear. Day of the broadcast, Thursday, 90 degrees. So October 19th, 90 degrees. Don't know where you're listening, but you might compare that to what you're experiencing locally. That's a fairly typical, fairly typical fall feeling here in the Sacramento Valley. Been some haze in the air, mostly actually dust because they're, vacuuming up the walnuts as we speak so there's a lot of fine particle stuff in the air but other than that clear and crisp and sunny and mostly clear thursday night 55 degrees friday sunny and 85 degrees getting closer to our actual average temperature this time of year friday night mostly clear and 54 degrees and then a dramatic change so that was friday 85 well saturday is going to be 73 Mostly sunny. Saturday night is going to have a slight chance of showers, going to be 54 degrees. Sunday, a chance of showers and 70 degrees. So what was that? 90 to 70 in five days. Got it. And Sunday night, mostly clear, low around 53. Monday, sunny with a high near 76. Monday night, about 51. And Tuesday, sunny with a high near 73. What's going on out there? Well, the extended discussion is that the uh, the short wave trough will move through interior northern california on sunday that trough is the rain part with widespread light to locally moderate precipitation drier weather follows monday with locally gusty north to east wind ridging builds up into the forecast area and their forecast confidence lowers beyond monday but it looks like wet weather may return over mainly northern and eastern portions of northern california late tuesday into wednesday probably bypassing us here below average high temperatures expected through the extended forecast period. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to KDRT.org, KDRT.org and click on the support button. And while you're there, you will find all kinds of great programming. We have the most eclectic range of programmers of any little radio station anywhere. And of all the music shows, they're all across the board. Hawaiian music, we've got a Western poet show, Western music show, I do jazz. We've got people that do country, you name it. It's on there. And Praise Time with Preacher is gospel music. Host's name is Preacher. It's his nickname, not his title. believes that gospel music is powerful. Everyone can enjoy listening to it because it is uplifting and inspiring sung with passion and belief from the artist, touching all who hear it in a good and heartfelt way. Praise Time with Preacher is on Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. and replays appropriately Sunday, 7 in the morning, 7 to 8 a.m. That's Praise Time with Preacher.
1: And I have so enjoyed talking to Preacher the couple of times that I've met him. I am asking him to be on my show. So keep an ear out for That's Life. Sometime in November, I'll have Preacher on talking.
0: Okay, and uh, we've got a couple events we can talk about. The Memorial Grove planting event for Tree Davis is coming up on Saturday, October twenty eighth. We would love to have you help. It's from nine a.m. to noon. The Memorial Grove is on Shasta Drive, just south of the University Retirement Center. You can access it actually from the neighborhood on the other side. There will be some more plantings. So we're planting the understory plants. That's the term we use for the shrubs and perennials and ground covers. Under the newly dedicated Shervinka and Livers groves at Tree Davis Memorial Grove, digging holes, planting drought-tolerant plants, and spreading mulch. Even if you don't come to this event, I strongly suggest, if you're out in that area, walk through the Memorial Grove. It's the park just south of University Retirement Center. Right now, there are Zhaushnarias and Bladderpods, two California native plants, not native here, but native coastal zones, in full bloom over there, and they are glorious. I highly recommend a quick... Or a slow, a, an, an amble, a meandering stroll through the Memorial Grove. Take your mind off world events and go look at the beautiful things blooming in this lovely fall weather. But if you want to help plant, come on out October 28th, 9 to noon. Please go to treedavis.org to register just so they have an idea about how many people will be coming.
1: Also, And if you want to enjoy nature, even if you're not going to plant anything, you know, I think the Raptor Center's got something going, don't they, not
0: They do. And I had it right in front of me, and now I don't. Open house. You have it? There you go. Thank you. (laughs) You know,
1: we'll just back and forth here. There you go. (laughs) The California Raptor Center, which is part of the School of Veterinary Medicine here at UC Davis, will have an open house during the fall and spring on the third Saturday in October and the first Saturday in May. Now we're telling you about both because it's only twice a year that you get to do this. These are family-oriented days which allow members of the community to visit the center for a fun-filled and educational experience. Lectures on raptor rehabilitation, identification, conservation, and adaptation are presented during the day. Also, numerous handlers are available to answer questions about the live educational ambassador raptors that they will be holding on a glove. Visitors are invited to follow the self-guided tour route and to visit the museum for a hands-on experience. Open house hours, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the California Raptor Center. Now, I'm looking for the actual address. I don't see it. I think you should go to the look up California Raptor Center to find out how to get there.
0: Yeah, it's south of town. You just need to look it up and pull it up on your phone and your kid can get you there. <laughs> so It's fall in, fall, yeah. fall in the garden right now. I just want to quickly run through some of the things you can do in the garden. Still plenty that you can plant in your vegetable garden here in Northern California. Kale, collards, the sprouting broccolis, asper broc, broccoli, Rob, all that kind of thing. There are some faster developing forms of regular broccoli and even cauliflower that you can still plant rather different than the big headed ones you would have been doing earlier. All those stir fry vegetables, bok cutting celery, snow peas, they go in now, snap peas and shelling peas are planted now. All the leafy greens, lettuce, radicchio, arugula, mustard greens, spinach, Swiss chard, you can plant right on through the winter, honestly, but they go in great right now. Hurry up and get some seeds planted of radishes, carrots, and beets if you want to get those in because they need to get going while the still sunny and fairly warm. And don't forget that onions are planted in early November. It's also a great time to plant cover crop seeds, time to throw grass seed on your lawn if you want to, if you got thin during the summer and you want to get some more grass going, or change over to a better or lower water type of turf this is a great time to do that customer bought some grass seed from me two weeks ago and six days later sent me a picture of how happy he was that it was coming up it comes up really quickly at this time of year so it's a great time to scatter grass seed whether we're talking about grass as a cover crop grass for a meadow type planting or grass for your regular lawn And of course you know i was this is always like an afterthought but there's lots of flowers you can plant now
1: that's not the afterthought don that's the prime thing well it is
0: it's funny whenever i write these articles i focus and and notes i focus on the vegetable garden and the turf Mm -hmm. and stuff but really it's a great time for flowers And there's lots of things you can plant now it's just i I always have to have this conversation with people who are new to the area that it's you know perplexing to them that we're selling things like pansies in october snapdragons pansies and violas, several other things, calendulas, sweet peas, and even things like sweet alyssum and dianthus, which we basically sell and plant year round. All those things I just mentioned go in now and are often in bloom when you buy them and continue to bloom right on through the winter into the spring. And in the case of snapdragons, all the way as frequently into early summer, cyclamen are just coming into nurseries now. They're in short supply this year. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that. The main one being As a crop, it takes the growers a lot longer to get a nice cyclamen plant to you than all those other things I just mentioned. So if you want some and you have particular uses, like you always do red and white cyclamen for a holiday theme or something like that, you should probably catch them early. Uh, You're going to find that garden centers are going to probably run out. These are really worth growing. And even though they're like three times the price of other flowers in the same size pot, they also last like three times as many years, a <laughs> cyclamen will go on for years. I have pictures of these mini cyclamens in a planter outside my front door every month of the year. Uh, its particular strain is remarkably abundant bloomer. It doesn't even seem to go dormant in the summer. But in general, cyclamen come into bloom in cool weather, bloom through the winter, bloom here into the spring. And as it gets up into the 85, 90 degree range again at the other end of the season, they go out of bloom. Most people pull them out at that point and throw them away. But they are a bulb that can go through the summer. Some of them even keep growing and blooming through the summer. That's kind of new. But most of them go into a something of a summer dormancy. Just leave them. I very commonly plant fibrous begonias right around my cyclamen. They grow right over them, flower through the summer. They start to freeze down when we get frost. The cyclamen are just coming into bloom. So they can be part of a long-term planting. But if you want to use them as a winter annual, hey, as a retailer, that's absolutely fine with me. <laughs> uh, the new miniature ones are really cool. and I suggest you check them out. And then there's a lot of gazanias and things like that that are blooming in the winter, yellow bush daisy, lots of flowering plants that are more perennial or even shrubs like the bush daisy that will bloom through the winter. It's also very close to time to plant bulbs, daffodils and things can all go in now, tulips and hyacinths when the soil cools off a bit. So bulbs are out there in the garden centers and check them out. Lots to do in the garden. It's a great time of year for planting almost anything. We should also mention one of our key timing issues, California poppy seeds. Oh, yeah. Throw them out right before the first rain. Hey, it looks like it might rain on Sunday. Now, if it rains a little bit and then doesn't rain much more, if I were throwing poppy seeds out on Saturday or Sunday, which I plan to do, I'll actually go ahead and water them anyway. I'm going to pretend I'm rainfall uh, because I think we're just going to get a little drizzle, maybe a tenth of an inch, a quarter of an inch out of this. That's not really enough to wet the soil down deeper. uh, And the soil is at its driest stage of the year right now. So when you throw them out, go ahead and augment the watering at first, unless you know there's going to be rain steadily in the forecast. But they'll come up very quickly when they're planted in October. Remember to plant them where there's no competition, no weeds or anything growing nearby. Don't cover the seed. So you do need to water it pretty thoroughly to sort of settle it into the soil and monitor that area pretty carefully for weed seedlings. The ceilings of poppies are fragile and they don't transplant very well, although I've done it. So try to do a little pinch here and a little pinch there rather than flinging a whole packet of them out in one spot. But uh, basically, right before a rainstorm is a great time to plant wildflower seeds, particularly California poppy seeds, and any of the grasses that might be part of your lawn, meadow, or mixed planting. Great time for all that. And of course, nurseries are just packed with California native plants right now because this is when we are told you all want to plant them. So everybody has a lot of them in stock at the moment.
1: October has has lots of fall plants that have tubular flowers that the hummingbirds love. Yes. Like all the fuchsias and the figelius. Figelius. I can never phagellus.
0: pronounce it. Almost phagellus. all of them are... Here's the funny part about most of them. They often have fuchsia as part of the name. It's because a common
1: look
0: name. Like a fuchsia. Yeah, none of, you know, Cape fuchsia, uh, California fuchsia. If anything, even close, Australian fuchsia, the Koreas. If they have anything that even vaguely resembles a fuchsia flower, that becomes the common name. For the record, folks, it's F-U-C-H-S-I-A. I always remember that by just saying fuchsia because it was named after some guy named Fuchs. So that makes it easier to remember. But we all pronounce it fuchsia. Most people misspell it. That's not a big deal. But uh, there's real fuchsias. I I grow them. I love them. They're very popular in the coastal parts of California until the fuchsia gall mite showed up about 30 years ago and just wiped them all out. But these things that look like fuchsias are generally much easier to grow. And many of them are quite suited to our interior.
1: And there's a lot of those things that bloom in the spring and the summer. But in the fall, there are a few things that are well they're just coming in and they're spectacular yeah. one of my favorites is called zauschneria and don pulled up an old article from the pacific horticulture magazine which by the way is online and this article is there if you if you go to uh, pacifichorticulture.org and then just do little, their little search and go for zauschneria the, the article was written before the zauschneria name was changed yes. to don
0: Epilobium.
1: Epilobium. No, so no. All, no. Yeah, all, all California
0: fuchsias are now considered Epilobiums and there's a bunch of other plants in that genus. So we all in the nursery trade just like to say Zauschneria because it's fun to say anyway. It is.
1: <laughs> and it is a, a very wide range of looking things. I mean yes. they're all Zauschneria. I get that. But some of them are gray-green foliage, some of them are dark green foliage, some of them have um tubular flowers that are very strict, stern, skinny, simple. Uh, Some are flared at the end into this fringe. That's just incredible. They're orange, they're red, they're salmon color. There's even some that look almost white. I'm not sure they're actually white. They might be cream, but Sessionaria is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Don sent me a picture today of the, the memorial garden here in Davis, you know, that tree Davis planted. Mm-hmm. And he said he put those things in three feet apart a few weeks ago no no they're putting
0: no they're put in three feet apart 18 months ago yes. and they' were planted all the way down a path and this was by the volunteers that come in this is the kind of planting job you'll get to do if you come out to one of these planting days if you get out there a year and a half later look at how this bed has filled in this one is uh, epilobium or Zauschneria canna uh, the California the one that's sometimes called californica very upright growth habit and this is this is the key thing one the article is phenomenal what well, i saved it years ago and i finally went digging back to find it again was really delighted to see that it's still available online because it goes through how many different kinds they are and really the one commonality is that the overwhelming majority of them are bright orange red flowers most of them there is a salmon there's a pink and there's one that's called white and i like you i haven't seen it so i don't know whether it's just pale 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 pink or really truly white but i've seen pictures of it it looks rather pretty the rest of them are really hot orange you know orange is it can be a challenging color to fit in with other plants but generally speaking when you have exhaustion you don't have a lot of other plants with it this is a key thing i want people to to take home about this plant give it room they look very delicate a little unassuming in the nursery can in fact they can look a little rough in the nursery can i can tell you as a retailer this is a plant that can be challenging for us it looks a little bit shaggy um, and sometimes isn't even blooming when you buy it so it can be a little hard to sell but you should check the label carefully check with us or whoever you're buying it from carefully about the height of the plant some of them are as low as eight inches others are more than three feet and the growth habit of the plant many of them hug the ground those are probably the most garden friendly ones for you have who have like mixed planter borders of all kinds of different perennials some of them however stand upright three feet plus and spread vigorously and crowd out everything else and I've had people who planted those basically Zauschneria or epilobium canna being one of the, the more common ones which is the one I sent you a picture of You aren't going to have much else in there unless it's a plant that can really hold its own, like a big Artemisia or California sage or something like that. They go very well with those types of plants. It's an aggressive spreader and it can fill space with a plant that attracts hummingbirds from about August in the case of many varieties all the way into November. Some of them even longer. They basically stop blooming when the rains batter them down. And these are classic herbaceous perennials although many of them get rather woody looking they're not truly a woody plant like a shrub and most people who have zaution areas at first you're very timid and you're carefully deadheading and you're snipping a little oh my bit God. <laughs> and then you take then at some point you go i could just take a lawnmower <laughs> and clean that all up very nicely i'm not
1: gonna do that either <laughs>
0: and you can you can you can shear them to the ground midwinter or early spring as you prefer and they'll, they'll rejuvenate them very nicely so when you think about california fuchsia for your own yard Be aware that there's a wide variance in their growth habits. And then, of course, that bright orange color is something you as a design person may wish to locate fairly carefully. But it's the the growth habit that has often startled people. We planted some in, in rich soil in a garden bed for a client many years ago, and within six months... They had spread more than three feet from each single plant and were crowding out many of the other flowering perennials in there. And fortunately, one of those other flowering perennials was Alstroemeria, so I knew it could hold its own. But all the others, you know, the client and I had to decide, do we want a bed full of California fuchsia or do we want a bed with a lot of things that are mixed flowers? Because it was going to be one or the other. I highly recommend it for... Low water landscapes where you've got a lot of woody plants and you want something to fill the areas in between them with a plant that gives you this spectacular fall bloom, draws hummingbirds like crazy. Uh, it's a great choice for that. Give each plant plenty of room. Three to six feet is not unreasonable for a single plant of Zauschneria in a typical garden or landscape. And in containers, they can be challenging because they just collapse from wilt all the time. Really better out in the garden than to try to grow them in a container. It's not, in my opinion, not a great container plant. But if you're limited for space, if you only want to do a container, there are varieties like Catalina, which stay reasonably compact and could be managed that way. In a large container, expect to take the whole thing out every couple of years, divide it up, give three quarters of them to your friends, stick one back in the planter, refill it with good soil and start over. Probably about every third year you would need to do that or it'll just get overgrown and kind of unattractive looking. I do notice one interesting comment. I've encountered this in this great article here about pests. There are very, very few pests of Zauschneria or Epilobium But leafhoppers can be a problem. They just happen to like them. That's frustrating, but there's not really much to do, and they don't really do much harm, so I don't worry too much about them. But the one that I have noticed, and this is kind of entertaining when it happens, you know the tomato hornworm? Yeah. The sphinx moth, that giant caterpillar that you get on your tomatoes, which can eat an unbelievable amount of foliage. Well, they actually will oviposit on zautionaria or epilobium uh, from late spring into summer and they can completely defoliate the plant although you know hand this is much like with with tomatoes use some judgment about how concerned you need to be about this if you have a couple of them and they're eating a whole bunch of foliage it's a vigorous plant i wouldn't be at least bit concerned about that you're just encouraging the population of these fascinating moths and don't worry too much about it in general You know caterpillars turn into moths or butterflies that's all part of the life cycle we shouldn't be too concerned about it unless they're literally threatening the plants vitality vigor performance or garden aesthetics there's not much reason to take action against them and uh hand picking is fine you can there, you know you can just pick them and fling them off into some other part of the garden hate to say they'll probably starve to death when you do that but more oh, than no, likely,
1: they'll get eaten by the birds yeah, more than
0: likely they'll become right they'll become a buffet of another animal uh, and they just don't usually do that much harm but they can eat an awful lot of vegetation all at once so that's something to be aware of uh, but if they happen, I don't think there's any reason to spray. I think in most cases with, with the, the tomato hornworm, they're visible. You can just hand pick them at that point. Anyway, Sauchonaria is, is, is probably the most popular late season blooming perennial that's a California native I can think of. And if you have a long mixed perennial border that has salvias and penstemons, it fits right in as long as they are big, vigorous plants that can hold their own against the continuous spread of the epilobium. If you do nothing, you'll probably have a big bed. California fuchsia, I can think of worse problems. Great plant, great California native, very popular. uh...
1: So let's go and get another question because I want to keep us moving today. So James writes, I installed a small fig tree about seven years ago and it's now around 15 feet tall with roots that I suspect extend throughout my vegetable garden, perhaps 20 feet in any direction. (laughs) I like the figs, though the critters get most of them. But I suspect that root competition may be one reason that my tomatoes and squash remain small and unproductive. I have a drip system that gives around three gallons once a week at each emitter within a few inches of each garden plant. And I give supplemental hand watering to the squash plants in between. So is it reasonable for a vegetable garden to coexist with a fig tree or do I have to choose between them? If so, can I grow a fig cutting in a large container and kill the tree? What <laughs> would you do? How would you go about doing this? Yeah, this is a lot of, a lot of information in there. Yeah, too. that's
0: great. What's Figs not? are considered dry region, riparian plants meaning they have roots that go out extensively uh, in search of, we use that term, it's an anthropomorphic term where they aren't really searching for anything. They grow where there's moisture, when there's moisture, and then they stop growing in that area when there isn't moisture, and then they resume growing when there is. So they're accustomed to being on the edges of places where moisture occurs seasonally. On my farm, there are figs that have not been irrigated in more than three decades, by me specifically, but I know that their roots have probably reached the orchard 30 feet away that gets irrigated and they're probably tapping into that as well as what's coming down from natural rainfall figs have aggressive roots it's really that simple and you think about some of the ornamental ficus uh, which are massive massive trees if you ever get down to balboa park in san diego go look at the tree there that's i think a 100 plus years old and as a kid we could climb right up into it which was really cool now there's a fence around it but you could run all over the big enormous roots that went out from that tree well your fig is capable of doing that and yes it would certainly be competing rather aggressively with the vegetable garden three gallons once a week is not enough for your vegetables so that is right there is the first part of your problem second is that
1: three gallons of water
0: right thank you (laughs) yes and um so that's part of it part of when we're talking when we're talking about root competition what they're competing for is water and nutrients so you need to add more nitrogen for not only the vegetables but also the fig tree it'll take take advantage of it so just plan on feeding more regularly in your planter and it's taking water but three gallons a week is not enough for most vegetables particularly in a raised planter at least not here in the sacramento valley and in any of the hotter drier interior parts of california Uh, a tomato plant an indeterminate tomato plant by my estimation and uh, practice requires about 10 to 12 gallons of water per week Per plant that's a tomato indeterminate type big tomato vine smaller one determinate types maybe five or six gallons per week so three gallons isn't doing it and peppers and eggplants and squash just like water more often than that so that's the first thing i don't think you're watering frequently enough for some things deeply enough for other things right there might make a big difference and supplementing the nitrogen but yeah when you do all that you're also feeding and watering this lovely fig tree and they're big they get to be quite sizable even the smaller varieties of conventional figs such as black mission or brown turkey black mission mine is about 20 by 20 and i whack it back quite regularly so it's a big tree with aggressive roots and there's going to be a challenge to have a garden right next to it there are figs that are smaller so for those of you listening in colder areas where you want to grow a fig and it's not really hardy there's um Violetta de Bordeaux, which is a wonderful, very tiny plant, very tight internode distances. looks like a black mission, but about half the size, keeps initiating figs no matter what. It's still trying to put on figs in December. So that's a slight drawback, actually. It keeps trying to put on figs even too late in the season to ripen them. But in the season you get plenty and it's a very good quality violetta de bordeaux there's black jack which is a dwarf version of black mission which could be kept under 10 feet with no problem and there's new ones coming on the market that i haven't tried like little miss figgy
1: oh yes, no yes
0: yes that's the name <laughs> which is a dwarf fig um these are going to be bush like figure six to ten feet they still have aggressive roots so I don't know they won't be as aggressive they certainly won't get big enough to shade the garden so they're not a factor as far as that goes but they're compact plants that still produce a lot of figs as to your question it's extremely easy to root figs and so one thing you could do sure is take a cutting off this particular one if you especially like this variety dormant season is a great time to take cuttings we've also done it in the spring on semi-hardwood uh, we've rooted them on a warm bench makes a big difference but whatever it's not that hard to root a fig and most of the figs that you buy in, in nurseries are just rooted cuttings basically easy enough to do I would suggest doing that just be aware that I mentioned aggressive roots so in a container obviously it's going to be constrained and you'll have to water it more you'll basically be stunting the plant that's fine you'll still get figs it'll still be cool uh, just make sure the planter is about as big as a half barrel that's probably the smallest unit I would put a fig tree of any size into. But I know that all over the country, there are people growing figs way out of their hardiness zone. There are whole forums dedicated to fig production in Canada and New England and mid-Atlantic states where they're clearly not hardy enough to grow. And they have a bunch of methods for getting them through the winter and a bunch of miniature types they like to grow, various techniques they use to keep them small. It can be done. People grow figs way outside of their range quite regularly. So I can tell you that it's quite easy to do one in a container. It's just that in our climate, it Will need daily watering which would actually probably be very compatible with some of the vegetables in your garden so it can be compatible with a vegetable garden except that the roots are a problem i hope that answered your question because you do have an issue when fruit trees are close to a vegetable garden um, sometimes the fruit tree will overshadow outcompete, cause other issues in the vegetable garden depending on where you place it so if you're designing a new yard i suggest putting the fruit trees to the north of the vegetable garden beds rather than to the south east or west because then the shade will be minimal uh, from that fruit tree on the vegetable garden still doesn't deal with the root issue but um, uh, there at least helps to reduce the shading also there are barriers you could put on to keep the roots from coming up into the bed but then that would keep the roots of your tomatoes from going down into the native soil so you'd be trading one problem for another i think you can make this work i would just up the watering and up the nitrogen in your planter bed to accommodate the fruit tree nearby and prune it away and. Do the best you can that way, but you need to water more.
1: You're saying planter bed. You yeah. just mean in the ground, ground level, right?
0: I could. Well, it could be. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether it has a raised planter or not. Actually, that's a good question. So yeah. If
1: you have a raised planter, the true roots are down below in the, the dirt in the ground. Mm-hmm. And if you put a raised planter over, you know, 10 feet away or whatever, mm-hmm. wouldn't that separate the roots sufficiently or oh, would the, they'll roots come right the up, tree come up
0: they will come right up in there very happily so oh. any and this goes for any tree that's nearby in some cases i've had people plant near privets for example put in raised planters near privets and the privet roots invade the, the planter box that is a case where turning the soil might be beneficial just to break up those roots every now and then be aware of it. I mean, this is something that, that many roots are aggressive enough to move into the planter, especially since there's nutrients and moisture in there, you're kind of inviting them in. And some species are just worse than others in that regard.
1: It is October, Don, and I want to say this to our listeners. It's October it's fall deciduous plants are losing their leaves so if you were to for example go out and buy oh a nice shrub or a tree or something like that and take it home and plant it which is a great thing to do mm, good time then, of year for it yeah and then the leaves wilt and start to fall off, it's okay. It's fall.
0: It's funny that you should mention that because we get this every year. It's usually a Japanese maple, a crepe myrtle or something like that, that they purchased for some feature and they plant it. And yeah, fall is a great time to plant. We all tell you that the soil is nice temperature. You control the moisture. The days aren't so hot. And even if they are briefly, it's very short duration and so on. Um, But they didn't know that these are deciduous and so we get the call and you know you want to laugh but we all had to learn at some point what deciduous and evergreen means yes they some things some things will be stressed by the process of transplanting them that will push them faster into dormancy so you don't know for sure whether the plant was just stressed by being transplanted or whether it's just going into normal deciduous dormancy Thank you for that public service announcement <laughs> that fall is here, therefore, trees <laughs> drop their leaves. This brought to you by the Davis Garden Show.
1: <laughs> well, if, and, if they're not supposed to
0: drop their leaves like citrus or something, then you want to talk to your local garden center.
1: <laughs> and just because we have so many people moving to Davis from other places every fall, because we have mm-hmm. a high student population here at the university, I, I do want to also mention that there are some things. That you might expect would lose their leaves that don't mm-hmm. or don't yet. We have on campus lots of different kinds of oak trees. Davis is a very oaky place. People <laughs> have, professors have brought oak trees from all over the world. In fact, we have a, a spectacular oak grove at the Arboretum. But around campus, there's lots of oak trees, and there are some that are called live oak. And what that means is, they do have, they do drop their leaves, but the life cycle of each individual leaf is more than a year. And so there's a time when the new leaves have come out and the old leaves haven't yet dropped. And so there's never a time that the, the tree is bare. That's why they're called live oaks, but it is confusing to people sometimes.
0: Well, and our fall color usually begins in October, but our main period of fall color is early November. That's something important to know. And some of the trees like ginkgo don't even turn color till late November, early December. So while they're getting, I'm seeing spectacular pictures of fall color in the East Coast and the Mid-Atlantic and places like that, we're probably four weeks away from the peak of our fall color here. There are trees that give great fall color. They're mostly introduced species like Chinese pistachio and others, but we do get very nice fall color around this area, but it's in November November. november and then uh, lois mentioned oaks there is one category that i should mention because i do get questions about this there are oaks that don't that are deciduous but they don't drop their leaves when they're supposed to they're called marcescent, and so they grow great and they perfectly healthy here and they might even get some fall color the red oaks do this schumardi oaks turn red and then the leaves turn brown and they hang on there and in some cases they hang on for just a few weeks like my schumardi oak which is a beautiful red oak um, they don't really drop the leaves until late December, early January with the first couple of storms. There's others that don't drop them until spring, so we don't even sell those because they're simply brown and dead-looking uh, all through the the winter because they're deciduous, but they don't absize the leaves. So marcescent oaks, we get concerns about it when you're planting an oak. You probably aren't going to go into a nursery and buy Quercus palustris, the pin oak, because most of us don't sell it for that reason. They they brown them. They just hang on there. They don't drop. So that's that's a a unique characteristic of a deciduous tree that doesn't actually properly drop its leaves. Oaks are a good example. There's lots of oaks in the area and we have both live oaks and valley oaks that are more or less native here. The live oaks, coastal, you know, coast range natives that are very common in Davis reseed themselves quite a bit characteristic of many oaks just for the record valley oak is our native tree big beautiful specimens in the air they do drop their leaves clean it's a wonderful tree if you have room for it but be aware that some of the deciduous oaks are marcescent so that's this week's vocabulary word
1: and don says that valley oaks recede themselves and i will <laughs> i will object to that description our local California scrub jay. Okay. the thing that plants those valley <laughs> oaks. Yes, true. And you true. can watch them taking, <laughs> yeah. a, taking an acorn, uh, hopping around on the grass, finding yes. a place. Ooh, there's a place. Is it soft enough for me to push this in? Yes. yes. I you, And shove that little thing and tap it in. And, and there it is in your lawn.
0: Scrub jays and, and squirrels. I mean, I I was trying a project a couple of years ago. I was trying to grow a bunch of things in the walnut family, other relatives, heart nuts, butter nuts, because I was curious about it and wanted to have them on my farm, planted the the acorns, excuse me, the nuts themselves into gallon cans, put them out in my backyard in an area where they get watered automatically until the rains came and they started coming up. And I realized they were all English walnuts. Everything i had planted was an English (laughs) walnut. I hadn't planted them. I had planted something else, but either the squirrels or the scrub jays had come along, not only removed what I planted or most of them, but put something else in its place. So had I been growing these for sale, there would have been a lot of people out there with seedling English walnuts expecting to get something entirely <laughs> different. Yes, they're very, uh, they're very devious, those little animals. All right, let's move on to the next you know,
1: topic. John, we should talk about fruit trees planted in public places. Yes. Now, I know that's a topic you you wrote this uh, article for me about fruit trees for schools Mm -hmm. and and it isn't just schools it's like people going oh in a parking lot let's have some fruit trees or um, in my front yard I want to plant fruit trees or why can't you
0: know, why don't this, this comes up a lot. This was a, an inquiry about a school siting of fruit trees, but there's the other v- comes up as we're doing, for example, tree plantings for tree Davis, where we're planting shade trees, and people often come to meetings and want to talk about it and ask why we don't plant fruit trees as part of that process. Well, first and simplest is there, they tend to be short lived. Uh, so they don't really fit in what we're thinking of for shade trees. But schools are different. Every school in California is supposed to have a garden. I don't know if you know that. There was a law passed or a rule from the state superintendent public education probably 20 years ago and that every school should have a garden and schools took that seriously. It was very interesting being in Davis as a garden center and helping literally every elementary school in town plant a garden they're thinking vegetables but very commonly grants that are written for this kind of thing for school gardens that are for example tree davis gets these kind of grants that's our main funding they will call for fruit trees and our staff person in one case sent me this note they found resources on our website which by the way i do recommend for this in terms of ripening dates and and which ones are easy and so forth lots of information at redwoodbarn.com geared to homeowners but i think you could if you were thinking of working on a school project or a or a park in your neighborhood and you want to get fruit trees, you could look at this for that purpose as well. And her question was that she was wondering if there were any that we would highlight as being particularly hardy, using the term easy to grow, not cold hardy, that might do well on a school campus. And In most cases, in this instance, there would be teachers who would steward the garden, vegetable gardens primarily, on sites where the fruit trees would be planted. And they'll be planting, this is written into the grant agreement, citrus apples pears and stone fruit trees all right we'll come back to that in a moment Mm any insight you could provide would be greatly appreciated and uh i've dealt with this topic parking lot for example the davis food co-op they remodeled a number of years ago and the landscape committee met and i was invited to come in and give pointers there was a big push there to plant fruit trees in the parking lot most of you listening can probably think of problems that might come from planting Soft fruited fruit trees in a parking lot. Um, so we 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 did steer them away from that idea. You'll often see people suggesting that parks have trees, fruit trees planted, so people can harvest the fruit. You know, harvest fruit and take it home. There'd be edible stuff in parks. Um, again, I don't want to be too negative, but I want people to be pragmatic about these things. So first of all, when would you get them? bare root season is still a thing so fruit trees that are deciduous you would get best selection if you really want to get a whole range of things and some interesting things like i don't chinese date jujubes persimmons you probably are best looking for those in the bare root season rather than waiting till summer or fall when some wholesaler might have them in containers citrus on the other hand can be planted anytime through the warm season so spring summer early fall is great for planting citrus but these are really the key issues and i want to go over these and then we can talk about particulars they need water so you don't plant fruit trees in a place that's going to be a low water landscape that should be a separate thing or uh,
1: some place where people go away for the whole summer
0: that's a big issue right there yes so some of them need to be pruned in the summer or the winter summer for size control winter for structure well there's generally no one there on campus during the summer, including the teachers who are shepherding these gardens so that's where it's really important and I always emphasize this, bring the school's custodial staff into the decision making process early I, I went out to a school one time to plant a shade tree someone had won in a contest And the janitor who was standing there chatting with me said they're gonna plant that there i said that was where it was called for because that's right in the middle of the play field you know (laughs) okay so it wasn't there's no chance it was gonna live there's their kids running by all the time mowers he said that's not a good place for a tree I said, they didn't ask you did they no i said well where would you plant it he just pointed over there i'd get water over there great we moved it over there custodial staff should have been involved in the conversation from the very beginning because he's the guy who's going to be doing the watering during the summer the teachers aren't there Uh, And there's pruning work needed on some not all that's an important consideration you don't prune a peach or a nectarine it'll just collapse from the amount of fruit. Soft fruited stone fruits, these are the most popular I still sell more peaches than any other category of fruit tree in my nursery, but they ripen in the summer almost all of them. June is the earliest and May may be for some varieties. June through August into September. Well, unfortunately, that correlates with lack of activity at schools. So the soft soft fruited stone fruits aren't really going to be of great use to the students. Let's put it that way. And here's the other thing. If you've ever grown those plums, peaches, the day they're ripe, you need to pick them. Uh, It's not like you can wait till next weekend. So if you don't pick them, they're all over the ground. So they're they unharvested fruit can be very messy. And even if they are likely to be harvested, a lot of them are going to fall on the ground. Factor that in. It's actually pretty easy to manage. Have it fall on a place where there's soil or where there's a grassy meadow or a ground cover where it won't matter. Not on a vegetable garden, not on a path, because that just becomes a hassle for someone to clean up. And this is probably the most important one. It's very important to avoid what I call intractable pest and disease issues, things that are not readily controlled or that would require spraying. You should assume no pesticide spraying will be done on these fruit trees in city parks, public areas or schoolyards. They're not going to permit pesticide spraying that many homeowners would probably be willing to do to control well-known chronic pest problems that I can tell you you're sure to get. So that's kind of the negative, but I will I'll give a positive. Citrus, if you're hardy where you're listening, are probably the easiest and most reliable of the things you can plant in a school garden. They don't aggressively compete with the roots of the plants in the planter boxes or the beds nearby. Uh, they can be kept small with no problem. They can be allowed to grow big if that's OK. They should probably be kept at harvestable height, but they can be allowed to grow much bigger than that. Um, mandarins are particularly cold hardy. So if you're listening in the Sacramento Valley or interior Southern California or the East Bay, you wouldn't even have to worry about frost protection. Just plant them. They're fine. They can go down to 18 to 20 degrees in some cases with no problem. Uh, Then they typically don't need pruning, although you can do it. So if someone comes in to prune them, great. If not, okay. well, they get out of reach. That could be a bit of an issue for harvest. But other than that, not a huge issue. Orange trees also tend to get bigger than mandarins, but manageable size. And they can be pruned without much difficulty or just allowed to grow mandarins. oranges are probably the most popular real simple reason you can walk up pick it off a tree peel it and eat it you don't have to cook it or process it or do anything you can just pick it peel it and eat it right there
1: in the winter too
0: in the winter and the spring there are varieties that ripen in the spring some of them some varieties hang very well on the tree over many weeks even into the summer in some cases i mean i just planted a mandarin orchard and i will have mandarins ripening from late october to may for sure and probably even june or july in the case of gold nugget which ripens late so if you're planting three citrus and did a satsuma mandarin a washington naval orange and a gold nugget mandarin you would have fruit from november through may reliably on just those three trees and that's when there are people at school so that makes them very handy and also if the fruit falls on the ground it's actually pretty easy to clean up it isn't a big splatty mess it just molds on the ground and, and frankly it will just disintegrate if you've got a ground cover or a grassy cover or something like that so they're not a huge nuisance i want to see examples just head over to capitol park in sacramento those are sour oranges lining the avenue as you walk in on the east side beautiful hundred plus year old trees Sour oranges fall all over the ground over there. I guess the squirrels eat them. Otherwise, they basically just disintegrate, get picked up by the, the the landscape crew. It's not a big deal. It's not like peaches or something like that. So citrus would be high on my list if you're in a region where they grow. Um, unfortunately, they mentioned they did mention citrus, but they also mentioned what was it? Peaches, apples, pears. Well, the ones that aren't on that list are among the easiest fruit trees to grow. The lowest water, lowest maintenance fruit trees are figs. We've talked about them already persimmons, and pomegranates. I I know not everybody likes those, but think about this. Figs, although they do a spring crop that some of the kids might be able to eat April, May, early June, they also do that main late summer and early fall crop. So there are still figs hanging on trees right now, and school is in session. There's also figs all over the ground. They tend to be rather heavy producers. Pomegranates ripen late October through November. Persimmons ripen in November and December. So these are things that would be present in the fall and into the winter and usable and can be planted and just left alone. You don't have to do anything at all on them. Uh, They're very, very low maintenance. I'll mention jujubes because we've noticed steadily increasing sales of what are sometimes called Chinese date trees or jujube. very very easy to grow but they're very thorny so you better think about that as to whether it's okay in a school or not I've, I've had school administrators who thought thorny was fine I remember the principal of a local elementary school when she was about to plant some barberries around the little garden area right near the front and I said those are really thorny and she just looked at me and said they'll learn. <laughs> great, great attitude for an elementary school principal. Uh, but bear in mind that Chinese dates or jujubes are quite thorny. so And they also sucker like crazy. However, there are certain demographics that absolutely love them. Sales are increasing in that category. You don't have to do anything to get very large crops of jujubes. You can dry them. They're very rich and flavorful and, and, and good for you. So, I mean, it's a, an interesting one. And there's some people from different parts of the world that really know that plant better than most Americans. Uh, harvest, for those Types late summer, fall, and into the winter. So you've got, you know, things that would be there at the right time. If you decide to do figs, probably better to do the dwarf types because big figs are huge, huge trees. Uh, so, you know, the dwarf ones like blackjack or violette de Bordeaux are probably going to be simpler. The ones that, that concern me apples. Well, apples get coddling moth. They will. I can guarantee it. You'll get worms in the apples. And as time goes by, 100% of the fruit will be wormy so that's not so great uh there are sprays you can do but that's not going to happen obviously you can bag some of the fruit that would be fun thing to do with the kids to show them you know if they bag the fruit in the spring that whoever is there in late summer or fall will be able to harvest worm-free apples that's one way to get fruit without worms but it's kind of a hassle they're also really high water users apples and pears in my experience need about half again more water than the other kinds of fruit trees they are however okay for a lawn So if you have turf nearby and you can't control the irrigation, most of the other fruit trees wouldn't be great there. Apples and pears might be okay there. Pears also can get the worms, but it's much less common. What they really get is fire blight, which is a big problem on them. So there's a simple answer to that. Do your homework, get fire blight resistant varieties if you're going to plant pears. They'll also need to be pruned for size control. So someone's going to have to come in seasonally and prune these apples. It's less crucial. You can allow an apple tree to grow big and giant and drop wormy fruit all over the ground if you want. But pears will just shoot for the sky and then start sort of falling apart. So they will have to be pruned for size control.
1: One of the biggest problems I see with what you're talking about is the, the, fruit is going to be at the top of the tree. Are are these kids going to be scrambling up the tree trunk to go pick the fruit? That (laughs) doesn't sound very very safe.
0: Probably not the best plan. Fortunately, apples and pears happen to fruit on spurs. And that spur, once it starts fruiting, fruit's on the same position on the tree year after year, and they can live for many years. So you can grow an apple on a relatively slow-growing root root stock, head it out when it's young, train it out in a low-branching manner. This might be a case where vase training is appropriate, and we'll certainly talk more about that as we get into the winter season, but low branching so that the fruit will be accessible from the ground, I think would be very important. But those spurs do fruit at that same point year after year. That's why apples and pears lend themselves so readily to being espaliered, trained along a fence, because they will keep fruiting on that same short spur for 10 or 20 years in the case of apples and pears so they are and amenable. Plums. To
1: plums do that
0: they do and they also fruit on along the branch and and in fact plums uh, let's talk about peaches and nectarines first um peaches and nectarines have to be pruned i really don't recommend them for school gardens someone's a couple of years of not pruning they'll start to fall apart from excessive crop and they'll even have excessive crop when they're properly pruned sometimes so they need more input they need a they need a dedicated parent volunteer that's going to be coming in summer and winter to prune them they're going to get leaf curl Uh, they'll fruit fine in spite of leaf curl uh, but that someone's going to want to spray for it. that's just not going to happen nor is it very effective honestly if there is a strong desire for peaches and they are still the best-selling most popular fruit category for me there are miniature or dwarf Types they grow like a shrub, very tight inner node distance. The fruit is good. It's, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it's maybe seven. It's uh, good enough for this purpose, especially. No pruning needed. Yeah, they get leaf curl, but they'll still flower and fruit. But one other option that I do suggest is if there really is a desire for peaches, even being aware that they're going to probably most spoil on the ground, plant one of these ones that has beautiful flowers, like red baron There's a couple of others. They'll see that in February, March in our climate. That's when they're blooming. It's absolutely beautiful. They're spectacular. It can fit into, I can think of like 10 different science lesson plans. It could, could revolve around the fact that the peach trees are blooming right now. They do set, it does have a very high quality summer fruit. It's one of my favorites. It ripens in July, so it doesn't you know fit in the school year paradigm. But Red Baron is a beautiful tree that can be trained. In my case, I've trained it more like a traditional tree to enjoy the bloom. And that's been a nice bonus that it has this really good fruit as well. So that's one you might consider. But the dwarf peaches may be a better choice in a schoolyard. Plums are my go-to fruit species when someone comes in and they've never grown a fruit tree before and they want to have fruit in their backyard and they don't want to have to do a whole lot to it. Uh, Plums and pluots, but especially plums. Extremely easy to grow, even take light shade if necessary. Um, you can prune them for size control, and most people prefer to do that because otherwise you'll get like a thousand plums all over the ground. But they do produce reliably. And in the case of Santa Rosa, it's, I think it's still in the school year, just barely, <laughs> end of May, early June. So you're probably harvesting them. And uh, that one in particular is very popular because it's self-fruitful. If people want plums and pluots, the one factor you need to consider for a schoolyard or anywhere else is that most of them require cross-pollination with another type which must be chosen rather carefully for that purpose so you got to get the right combination of plus or the right combination of plums but there are some that are self-fruitful nubiana emerald butte and one the well-known california special santa rosa plum which is a luther burbank or uh, uh, innovation from over 100 years ago self-fruitful pollinizes all the other types so if you want a pluot it'll take care of that if you want another plum it'll take care of that fruits heavily on its own can be pruned hard and still fruits a lot and so it's become probably the most popular backyard plum in california so santa rosa would be a good choice just be aware it's going to get bigger than you think so someone will have to do some pruning on it this is not highly sophisticated horticultural training needed to prune a plum tree can be done by pretty much anybody and they really won't hurt it or affect the yield all that badly and if they don't prune it It'll grow very vigorously. It'll produce more and more and more and more and more to the point that you'll have more fruit than anybody could possibly deal with. And it will start to fall apart after about seven to 10 years. Peach, on the other hand, will be more like three to five years before it starts to fall apart from lack of pruning. So, plum, you have a little longer to make sure that your work crew is organized and going to be there on a regular basis. There's issues with fruit trees. I would steer you towards those low input ones or something like citrus, because I know they're going to be pretty reliable. Even if the watering changes drastically, those first group that I mentioned will be better choices. But there are choices among the popular categories of stone fruits. And if you want to do something like an apple, choose a fuji or anders or something that's reliable for california because not all the apples anybody's going to think of are going to be great here some of them need more more chilling in the winter than we typically get here
1: so when you're talking about a plum tree and and you you didn't get around to pruning it and you didn't get yeah. around to pruning it year after year after, i did that yeah you know i've made most of the mistakes we talk about on <laughs> yeah. show. and so uh, 4 years later with with not having pruned things, and the huge things going straight up from where they should be, yeah. I finally got someone to come who could climb a ladder and get up there, and they cut off four years' growth at once. Yeah, cut the tree—I mean, it's like we cut it back down to where we had been keeping it before but that was like half the height of the tree at that point yeah. and it was fine <laughs> so you, had, you plums, still have you still have I hundreds of plums re- right oh yes yeah, yes yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. no and, and actually plums in particular plums and pluots really lend themselves to summer pruning for size control i have pictures that i've used in talks where i show uh, plums and pluots that have been pruned reduced by three to four feet in the middle of the summer and there's nothing sophisticated about this you literally could do it with head shears i mean they've done Pruning machines have been developed on campus and plums are some of the first things they did them with that essentially turn your tree into a hedge. It's not terribly aesthetic, but it works but the idea being you're just cutting it back for size control and you can do that in the summer. I really do recommend that for plums. Well, they also take very well to it. They'll still produce very well. In fact, you'll get better quality with a smaller crop anyway. And that thinning out of those strongly upright shoots is important, but this is not, it doesn't require that you have someone with a degree in pomology to come in and do this. It doesn't take a lot of work to keep them under control. And if you, if it doesn't happen, like you said, three, four years went by and you still were getting plenty of plums and probably more than you knew what to do with, it just became a bigger job for whoever, finally did it but uh, it concerns me that there are some trees that have to be pruned like peaches and nectarines and if you don't things are going to go wrong there's others where yeah, you can skip a year if it happens and can skip a couple of years apparently and it'll still be fine and uh, you'll still get plenty of fruit and there's some which you don't have to prune at all pomegranates figs persimmons them, water weight that's pretty much all you have to do with those
1: so I was having, as you were talking, I was having this vision in my head of a way of having uh, several small trees, and a, you know, try out of different fruit. And I was thinking, okay, so if you build a little shed to, to hold all your gardening supplies and stuff like that, and you build it not attached to anything else, just out there, put the door facing north, all right. So now you've got three sides of the shed that you can espalier a fruit mm-hmm. tree on yeah. each one, a different kind of fruit tree on each one, and you the initial setup, initially getting that tree on, doing the espalier, tying it up. You know that takes a little bit, but that could be one year's worth of experiment or training or whatever. That, that's
0: and for the <laughs> that's for the sixth grade class. Yeah, yeah.
1: and then from then on. <laughs> Um, you've got you've got the flowers you've got the fruit you've got yeah. the all the stuff for tr- for teaching yeah. and maybe a little bit of of pruning as one of the classes for the fifth graders.
0: If you're going to do an apple tree at a schoolyard, an espalier would be a really interesting way to do it because then you could train it into a really simple area. And that way, it's not that difficult to bag the fruit, which is the simplest way to deal with the worms that are in the fruit is you can walk right up to them. They're right there on the structure that you have the branches trained on. You wait till the fruit starts to develop and you slip fruit bags of various types, including really simple ones you can, you know, paper bags will work plastic bags will work little fruit bags will work and you put them on there before the worms get in and uh, that way you know that those fruit at least will be worm free at the end of the summer early fall when you come back and they're ready for harvest so that would be the way to manage something like that just making sure that it gets enough water and espalier is a high input thing but it's actually pretty cool you know I think it's a great thing that uh, school one school could one class excuse me one classroom could pass on to the next class the most successful school garden in davis for years has been pioneer elementary school in south davis the organizer of that was a formidable personality and the idea there was that your second grade class takes care of this garden then gets it ready at the end of the school year to hand off to next year's second grade class and the teacher goes with it in sense of being shepherding that one and there's a summer work crew people who have signed up to come in during the summer every couple of weeks to make sure the weeds don't engulf it and you know, bermuda grass can overtake a garden bed in the course of one summer with no problem uh, make sure that the little pruning is done make sure the irrigation system is working that's really all just make sure the battery is still running the little timer or whatever because that'll be probably the way you'll water it is with a battery operated system and um, just monitor it and that has been very successful because each class is then graduating but handing it off to the next class that comes in rather i've also worked with a lot where they get a whole bunch of enthusiasm and a bed is built and the thing is done and that year is great three years later i go by and there's maybe some herbs still growing there and it's just you know that project moved on so i always do like to sneak in some perennials to these things when i'm donating plants for school gardens which i do all the time stick an asparagus plant in the corner, put an artichoke over there, put some rosemary, thyme, sage around the edges, put some lavender on the outside of the bed. You know, if you don't plant a vegetable garden, at least you still have all those things. <laughs> so it makes it something permanent and reminds you that there's a garden there. So fruit trees in public places can be challenging. Please think hard about it before you do it and think about this one thing I don't want to be a super negative, but The number of tree rats and squirrels that you have in your neighborhood is a function of the carrying capacity. To borrow a phrase from range management or or ecology studies, the carrying capacity is based on the environment, providing sufficient nesting spaces, habitat and food sources. If you increase the amount of food sources, you're likely to increase the population of tree rats ground squirrels and tree squirrels in your neighborhood so the fruit needs to either fall into something and disintegrate like an area where it will just compost itself on the ground or in a place it'll be easy to clean up and it should be something that doesn't require a harvest crew to come in and take it all out or you're actually increasing pest problems locally so it really should be something that's pretty discreet and that's one of the reasons i keep going back to things like pomegranates which have a tough skin things like citrus which hang on the tree yes tree rats do feed on those things and you know you get some pests on them but you're not significantly increasing the food resources for wildlife fine but also non non native vermin you've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore
1: and Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis California